an urban legend from the end of World War II should send shivers down the spine of even the most battle-hardened veteran. And then we travel to South Africa to take a look at the story of two humanitarian workers who lose contact with a village. As they head out to this village, they have no idea they're about to come face-to-face with blood-soaked insanity, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day, too. I hope you guys had a great weekend. we got a ton of stuff to cover, so we're going to get started right off by announcing our newest Patreon supporter coming into Dead Rabbit Command right now. It's Ryan Joseph Breen. Everyone give a round of applause for Ryan. He's walking into Dead Rabbit Command. Everyone give him a big standing ovation. <laughs> or you're driving your car, you're like, oh, why do you always make me do this stuff? Oh, you don't have to stand up if you're in a vehicle. But if you're not, better be on your feet for Ryan. Ryan, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, that's fine too. Just help spread the word about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. Tell everyone you know about Dead Rabbit Radio. Let's help this show grow. Because that's really how we all want to see it. Ryan, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the... Jason Jet, we're going to leave behind Dead Rabbit Command. We're going to take a journey all the way out to Poland. Ryan is flying us out in this Jason Jet. He's wearing his brain helmet. You didn't know that? He's a villain from Deep Space Nine. Well, technically, I don't know if they were ever villains. I always figured they were going to turn on the Dominion at some point. Ryan's like, what? what are you talking about? That's my real last name. I'm not an alien. Uh-huh. Ryan's flying us out there. We're keeping a suspicious eye on our brain pilot. He's flying us out to northern Poland, to be specific. We're headed to the town of Baby Dolly. (laughs) That's a real place. Baby Dolly. I guess I wrote it down in my notes and never said it out loud. Maybe it's like Babby Dolly, but it's written Baby Dolly. And that's in a city name. It's near a city named Gdynia. The year is 1945, and this is the end of World War II. The Soviets are advancing on the city of Baby Dolly. This was a strategic choke point. They're like, if we can get to Baby Dolly, if we can get to the Belly Button Ridge, we we will have a perfect view over Valley. Soviets are coming over Cupid Doll Canyon. It's just a bloodbath at Baby Doll. And you had the Nazis trying to retreat as far west as they could because they're like, okay, we lost... But we can either lose to the Soviets or we can lose to the West. The Soviets are going to murder us and the West will just become NASA scientists. It'll all be great. So they're trying to run West, but they're also like blowing up their supply depots along the way. Because the last thing they want to do, they don't want these Soviets to find these supply depots, eat a bunch of carbs and then run after them even faster. So they're like throwing grenades at supply depots. Some guy's like, dude, this is my house. Doesn't matter. I used to eat there. That's technically a supply depot. And one of the supply depots they blew up was this, like, it was a secret under... No one even knew it was there except for the Nazis. It was like this hobbit hole of a supply depot. (laughs) Take that, Bilbo. The Nazis leave. Soviets come in, and they take over Poland, and Poland's like, oh, great. Like, we just had to deal with the Nazi empire. Now we got to deal with the Soviet empire, but, hey, whatever. That happens all in 1945. In May of 1951, these guys are doing construction in Poland. They're like, yeah, bring the forklift over here. Eee. 
and they're like moving rubble around. I don't think there was still rubble six years later, but I don't know. They're actually like doing some construction in an area, and while they're moving this stuff around, they find the door to this underground secret Nazi supply dump. And the workers look at each other and they're like, dude, I did not expect there to be a door here. Like, it's in the dirt. We didn't expect there to be a door going underground. So they open the door. And they see a hand reach out of the darkness. Uh, uh, I don't know his exact words. I don't know if he moaned once or twice. But a man crawls out of the hole. And he has a beard that goes all the way down to his feet. Uh, and he just walks out of the hole. And he kind of just stands there. And then behind him, another guy. Uh, again, we don't have his exact words. Uh, he also crawls. The construction workers are dumbfounded. They didn't, they, they didn't expect to find a door. They definitely didn't expect one person to walk out. Now the second guy goes. Uh, and he looks up. And he sees the sun. And he goes. Oh. And he dies. He dies on the spot. And the construction workers are like, someone call a boss. I don't even want to have to deal with this. This is I should have called in sick today. Someone get the foreman down here because this is way outside of my pay grade. What happened? And this was reported in several newspapers. The Associated Press covered this. So the news article went all around the world. Time Magazine did a story on it. In May of 1951, this door opens up and two Nazis pop out. They had been in there for six years. What had actually happened was in 1945, when this whole retreat was going on, some people were still following orders. Some people were moving as units. These six dudes said, hey, remember that hidden supply shelter that we had a hard time finding and we were the Nazis? And every time someone said, hey, go get some flour, we'd walk around aimlessly for an hour looking for this door in the ground. Let's go hide there. And then after the Soviets show up, you know, we'll just pop up, learn a little bit of Russian, and they'll never know the difference. So they go into this underground shelter, and then the rest of the Nazis, they go, hey, we better, we better blow up the entrance to that supply shelter that no one's inside. So they started hurling grenades at it. And blew it up and caused all this rubble to collapse on it. And so the people inside this shelter were trapped. Now, at first, they go, we're, there's no way we're getting out of here. But, but eventually, the Reich will rise again. The Fourth Reich will once again take Poland. All we got to do is wait maybe a year or two. And we'll be back, baby. We got candles for light. We have tons of food. We have enough food here to feed battalions. That's what it was here for. There's only six of us. We can do this. But they couldn't. It would be really hard for any human to do this because they are completely sealed in to this underground room. They do have unlimited food. They're able to get water from like moss. Like there's moss in the caves and water's leaking through cracks. It's not the, not the most well-engineered underground Nazi bunker you can have, but I guess there's like cracks in it and they were drinking water. They said the ventilator never got damaged. All those multiple grenades didn't damage the ventilator so they or the air conditioning unit. I don't... I don't think air conditioning is the right term. I'm sure it was always like just 70 degrees in there because it's underground. But what I'm saying is they never had a blockage to their oxygen supply. So they had the oxygen, they had the water, they had the food. What they didn't have was every, every other thing a human needs. So within the first few months of being trapped in here, two men killed themselves. So now you got four left and they were living in this 
place with these candles and they have all this. But the candles, they only had four years worth of candles. So eventually, they're living in pitch blackness. And hopefully they memorize the layout by then. They're like, oh no, where did I put the pork and beans? They're scurrying around like rats. And two of the other men died of unknown causes. Which it would be hard to tell how they died. Because you would just be like waking up in the pitch black and then you'd trip over a body. You can't really do you can't really do an autopsy, right? Even if you did have candles, I don't think these guys would be like, oh, he died of a broken heart. Like they're not surgeons. They wouldn't be able to, or coroners, they wouldn't be able to tell. But two people died of unspecified causes. That left two men left, living in utter darkness for two years, eating food. It sounded like it was mostly like flour. I don't maybe some MREs of those existed back then, probably a lot of beans, Frankenfurter and beans and stuff like that. And one day, six years after they entered, the doors opened up and they pop out, and the one guy was so overcome by being outside, he died of shock. He sees the sunny sky for the first time in six years. Very, very interesting story, but when I'm reading it, I go, Is it true? Is this story true? Now, it was reported in the Associated Press. It was reported all over the world. The question is, did any of this happen? And that's really the hardest question to answer. There was one source I could find. It was this guy on Reddit by the name Kami Space Invader. He said, no, it didn't happen. And he referenced the Der Spiegel article in 1958. I couldn't find that article. He said, they said it was a hoax. Now, apparently... There was a website, a Polish website, called Neri Dagon. And they interviewed the person who made the discovery of Vladislav Dodowski. And this this makes it suspicious. He said that the story's real. He's the guy who found the door in the first place with his construction worker buddies. But he said it didn't happen in 1951. It happened in 1948. And it was covered up by the Polish authorities and by the German authorities and the Soviet authorities for years, and the story got out. That's a little suspicious because the date is so off, which makes you think it's more of an urban legend. But two, that would only be a three-year term trapped in that bunker, and that's more realistic, honestly. Three years being trapped in a, a bunker wouldn't make sense, and maybe their candles went out after two years, they're one year in the dark, and all this stuff. The point is, though, is that we don't know. At this point, the person who popped out of the bunker, the Nazi guy who popped out of the bunker, he went to Academia Hospital for a bit, and then just disappeared into history. They, there's no article back then saying what happened to him. But what's creepy about this story, I love it because we have this urban legend getting into the, possible urban legend getting into the press, which does happen. It's always funny that when you have mainstream press fall for these urban legends, so it could be that. But it's also creepy because this happened, but not with a happy ending. There were soldiers that were hiding out in these underground bunkers or trying to pillage these underground bunkers, and they got blocked in. Because this would be your tactic. You destroy your own supply so the enemy can't get them. It's called scorched earth. The Soviets were perfect at it. But as you're retreating, you don't want them to get all your flour. You don't want them to get the four years of candles. So you'd blow up the entrance. And I'm sure this happened a lot. I'm sure that they're throughout Europe. And Vietnam and Korea, any battlefield really. There's probably these bunkers that people were in. And other people destroyed the entrance to them. But they didn't get out. There wasn't a construction team working over the doorway. They were trapped in the darkness until they died. 
And to this day, they're not discovered. To this day, these these underground silos, unmapped, unmarked, in some jungle, or some cave, or deep within a forest, contains skeletons of people who were looking to hide or looking to pillage, and then became entombed and just died. They were considered missing in action. But really, they held out as long as they could, deep underground. Begging for help, while slowly going mad in the darkness under the earth. Ryan, Breen, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the carpenter copter. We are leaving behind this super dark, spooky tunnel, and we are headed on out to South Africa. It's July 2010, we're headed towards the Eastern Cape region of South Africa. I found this story online from a person named Bangin' Tunes. So Bangin', thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. It's actually Bangin's story. They were the one who was a humanitarian worker in Eastern Cape at this time period in July of 2010. Where they're headed is in the middle of nowhere. Bangin', we don't have his real name, so we're going to call him Tony. Tony is driving out there with Piet. They're both humanitarian workers. Piet has been here much longer than Tony. He's seen it all. And Tony has started to see some stuff as well. In one of the stories he said that, I remember once I was standing there, and Piet was standing next to me, and then there was a third guy there, a sorcerer who was burning chickens alive. And it freaked me out, but Piet just stood there and didn't even flinch as this guy was setting chickens on fire for this ritual. Tony's from a little quiet England town, so this is quite a culture shock for him. But it's been a while, and he's been working in Eastern Cape, South Africa, and he's gotten to really love the people of the region. In this particular part of Africa, they're working with the Boza people. But Piet's a little concerned, because he has a contact in this remote village that he hasn't been able to get a hold of. So he says, hey, Tony, we got to drive out to this village. I just, I, I, I have a funny feeling about this. I can't get a hold of this guy. I want to make sure everything's going okay. Yeah, sure, let's go. Hop in the Jeep. We're going to drive on out there. And as they're headed out to this village, it seems deserted. And sure enough, the Jeep pulls up. They get out. There is not a single person walking around the village. So they begin to go house to house. Hey, it's Piet and Tony. You in there? No answer. They go to the next house. You guys in there? It's us. It's Piet and Tony. No answer. And they're starting to get really concerned, as anyone would if they ever entered an abandoned village. This goes on for some time. And Tony sees movement out in the distance. He says there's a building at the farthest edge of town. And the movement I see is jarring to my senses. He turns and he looks, and he sees a woman in a full sprint coming towards them. She apparently was hiding behind the building because as he looks and he sees that movement, he sees her at first come around the back corner of the building, and he's running at Piet and Tony in a full sprint. And Piet sees this and goes, get in the truck, get in the truck. And Tony's just watching this woman run right at them. He can tell she's completely nude. She's covered in blood. 
Tony, get in the truck. The woman is now flailing her arms as she's running towards them. But the panic in Piet's voice is what really scares him. Because he's seen Piet in some stressful situations. Never heard him nervous before. They begin running towards the truck. And she begins running on all fours. Right when they get to the truck, she begins slamming her hands against Tony's window. Not only is she covered in blood, she has slices on her face, on her body. She's been cut open multiple times. And she's banging on the window and she lets out such an inhuman screech that Tony can't believe any person can make a noise like this. He said she was so bloody that he thinks one of her ears were missing, but he couldn't tell. She was just soaked in it. Piet has to back... <laughs> the, car is not, the car was not parked to have to outrun someone or make a quick getaway. Piet has to back up the car, and as he's doing that, she's scratching at the windows. And then she's actually scratching at the metal of the car itself. And he gets the car angled right, and he begins taking off down the road. And the woman is now chasing the car. And Tony's watching this whole thing in the rearview mirror, and he goes, I knew for a fact that she couldn't catch up to the car. But I felt like she could. Like he knew no human could run as fast as that car was going, but something in his gut told him if anything could catch this car, it was her. He said, I've never seen a human run so fast barefoot, ever. They're silent. They, out, they, they, they leave her far behind, and they just continue driving down the road. And they're silent for a while. Piet and Tony don't really say anything. They're just trying to calm themselves down. And Tony finally asked, what, what was that? Piet's just driving the car and he goes, if you, if you gotta ask me, I think the most likely answer is that woman had some sort of psychotic break. I don't know, I don't know if we saw anything supernatural. If you are asking me, I think she had a psychotic break. But here's the thing. I'll bet you anything this is what happened. She went nuts. And the townspeople, if they're alive, like I'm, this is my most hopeful scenario. The townspeople must have all hid in one building for safety. And she was just roaming the village this whole time. That's why I wasn't able to get a hold of my contact. It's my best case scenario. But here's the thing. I think she probably had a psychotic break, but the people in the village aren't going to think that. And if she doesn't kill herself tonight by like running and jumping off a cliff or just bleeding to death, continuing to cut herself, they will kill her within the next day or two. She's dead one way or the other. The day later, he is able to get a hold of his contact in that village. Hey, how's it going? Piet says. And the guy goes, well, yeah, sorry, I couldn't pick up the phone the other day. Uh, we had a bad presence in our village. But don't worry, don't worry. We took care of it. And Piet said, I never asked what they what happened with her. Apparently, the people in the village did not see this interaction between the girl and Piet and Tony. 
They were all hiding somewhere. They didn't see what was going on. But Piet says, I never asked what happened to the girl. Never saw her again. So I can only assume that they killed her. Now, Tony thought about this whole interaction. And he goes, on the one hand, if this woman's having a psychotic break. And she's in the presence of a bunch of superstitious people. Like, obviously, if she'd been able to be taken to a hospital, she could have been treated with antipsychotic medicine or held in an area until she wasn't a danger to herself or others. But because AIDS is so rampant in South Africa, he said the, the blood was one of the scariest things about the whole situation. Because, yes, a woman flailing her arms, running on all fours, screeching and unholy screeching your face, that's all terrifying. If any of that blood gets in your eyes, if she does scratch you, and it gets inside your skin, there is no way either of them were going to try to wrestle this girl there was no way these people were going to try to restrain her. Because the chances of her having AIDS was high. And she was covered in blood. It's a terrifying story all around. There's multiple ways that it's terrifying. One, just the physical idea of this naked, bloodied woman running at you, trying to injure you. And, and we don't know where these cuts came from. Were they self-inflicted? Were the villagers trying to defend her attacks earlier? We don't know. There's just a bloody naked woman running towards you. Like, any one of those would be bad. Naked woman running towards you, that's fine. She's bloodied, no. If she's running on all fours and she's bloody, no. Like, it just keeps escalating. So we have the physical threat. And then we have the idea of her side of the story. She lost control. Whether it was a psychotic break or the villagers were right and it was some sort of supernatural attack, some sort of possession, she is no longer in control of her body. She's no longer in control of her fate. She's a mad woman. And I always find that very terrifying as well. We see that a lot in true crime stories. People just snapping. Grabbing a pair of scissors, killing somebody. It happens a lot. And that's always terrifying as well. But I actually want to wrap this story up with a third thing that's very terrifying about this. And something we don't really touch on in this podcast or just, I think, in true crime in general. We have the story of Tony Piet trying to outrun this madwoman. And we have the story of the madwoman herself. But what about the loved ones of this woman? Imagine we are in this village and we've watched this young woman grow up and everything seemed to be fine. But in the past week, she'd started to act a little weird. This young woman is a member of our family. We're getting a little concerned for her. And then one day, she lashes out. She attacks someone at random. They fight her off. She begins attacking other people in the village. And you're watching this. You're watching your family member get sliced open but she won't stop her assault and so you all have to run you have to hide from this young woman that you've seen grow up her entire life and as you're all running to barricade yourself in a single building you can hear her screeching in the now empty village eventually the village elders go we can't hide in here all day 
This isn't a Nazi bunker. We don't have five years worth of food. We're going to have to go and take care of this situation. And you plead with them. Listen, I know she's acting weird, but this this isn't her. This isn't her. You guys know her. She's a member of my family. Like, let me vouch for her. And the village elders go, listen, she's possessed. Like, the woman that you raised is gone. There's only one way to take care of this. And so because you don't want to see her get hurt, even though you know that is what is coming down the pipeline, you're one of the first people out of this building to find her, to restrain her. And you catch her, let's say, in a moment of peace. She seemed to have calmed down. Whatever affliction affected her, it seems to be over. But the village elders have already spoken. She looks at you with pleading eyes, but you know that her fate is sealed. As she is executed the next day, you wish you could have done more to help her. But the superstitions of your culture wouldn't allow you to take her to a hospital. She was possessed. She needed to be put down. This was the order of things. You have to sit there and watch her be executed due to old superstitions. Tony and Piet were able to outrun the monster. But to the people of the village who knew this woman before this incident, they will never be able to outrun the memories of the life that was lost. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. TikTok is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.